Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to the very first episode of our podcast. Uh, at the end of the day, this is really going to be a show about the lost art of medicine. For those of you who are dissatisfied with the status quo inside of healthcare, uh, I'm your host, Andy DeLeo, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Wes Mercer and AJ Monpettit. Say hello, fellas. Hello. Hello, fellas. Since today is our very first podcast, I think it might actually be good for each of us to introduce ourselves to everyone that's out there listening to us. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to AJ first. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a Leo by birth. I like long walks on the beach. Uh, Myself, I am a designer, entrepreneur, and do a lot of creative media type projects. And this is one of them. So I'll be producing this podcast and helping keep you two in line. Sounds good, AJ. And how about yourself, Wes? Thanks, Andy. My name is Wes Mirza. I live in New Jersey. I've been raised in New Jersey for the past 30 years. Um, I've actually been in healthcare for probably the last 15 years of my life. And, you know, I've noticed a lot of things. I've worked in a lot of different healthcare industries, and it always is about the patient. And that's why I'm intrigued about the topic and this podcast that we can talk about what it means to be in healthcare and how that affects all of us. Thanks, guys. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with me, my name is Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek in the social media universe. I started the project around Cancer Geek way back in 2006, before podcasts even existed. And it was really because I saw that there was a a disconnect between what I feel is the most sacred interface inside of the world of medicine, and that's between the patient and the physician. And with that, it was all about creating that connection between those two worlds and changing the status quo. Over the course of the last 13 years or so, it's taken a lot of different forms. I've iterated, I've pivoted, I've changed, and I've met a lot of wonderful people. And why I'm so excited about this project is because I'm taking two people that I highly respect, that challenge me, that I learn from, and we can bring our diverse experiences and perspectives to hot topics that we're seeing and hearing about on a daily and a weekly basis. So with that, I'm just going to jump in. The first topic is something that is important to me, and it's really around trauma-informed care. And I'd like for us to talk a little bit about what is it and why it's important. Wes or AJ, do one of you guys want to maybe jump in and sort of give your take on it first? To me, trauma-informed care is understanding the patient and what their previous experiences have been how it relates to where they are today and what reaction they're going to have based on a physician or a healthcare worker's day in and day out procedures. We all have previous experiences, some good and some bad, and we've suffered some kind of trauma that doesn't show up in any kind of screening questionnaire. So when a healthcare worker is going to be examining a patient or speaking to a patient, there are certain trigger points that could affect a patient. And that's what trauma-informed care is. 
how do we prepare ourselves as healthcare workers for these patients? What type of screening questions do we set up to make sure that we're able to offer the best care for our patients and obviously make them feel comfortable in the environment? I think that's a very good explanation of it. And for me, reading through trauma-informed care, it reminds me of a lot of things that I've been working through with cognitive behavioral therapy about recognizing how we react to certain things and being present and in the moment to understand this thing is affecting me because of something that happened previously. And like you said, we all have trauma. We all carry certain types of reactions that we may not understand fully in the moment what's happening. And I think sussing that out, especially in healthcare, is a very difficult thing to do at the moment because we're not addressing it. And I think a lot of it is we're not really asking consent in a lot of respects when we're being asked to disrobe and put on medical gowns. A lot of things are orders and not conversations and not basically awaiting consent to do a thing. That can be very traumatic for certain people. And I believe with understanding how empathy plays and understanding just medicine versus healthcare is talking about the connection that you have with the patient, treating them like a human being. And it's a really simple thing to talk about. Maybe you guys can talk a little bit about how do we reverse the education and almost deprogram healthcare. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit, AJ. I think the world of healthcare is this process-driven, time-driven, medical-industrial complex that we've engineered to, which really sees the patient or the human is almost a number or a widget that's really supposed to get through this industrial complex and create this product, which unfortunately today that product is an ICD-10 code that allows us to bill and charge and get paid for. When we start talking about trauma-informed care and the discussion and the dialogue that needs to happen between a patient and a nurse or a patient and a physician is really about that connection. It's about that dialogue. It's about understanding the person in front of you and realizing that yes, they are here because they're seeking out your care and your expertise and your assistance. But really what it is, is it's about a two-way connection and that you as the physician or you as the nurse or you as someone else that's working inside of the world of medicine needs to take the time in and understand that it may not just be the, the trauma that's being invoked to that specific appointment today, but it may stem back to something in their childhood. It may be something that truly was traumatic. It could even just be a previous experience inside of you know medicine. Maybe they had to have an exam and the exam didn't necessarily go the way that it was planned. And because we don't have the time to ask those questions and to understand and connect, we're not necessarily sensing the needs of the patient at that time. And ultimately, we're not delivering an ideal patient experience. At least that's my take on it. So let me play devil's advocate. Reading through this, sometimes I can hear the voice of my father from another generation looking at this and going, are we just coddling people? You know, when is it time for them to just suck it up and just deal with it, right? 
this is something that I hear quite a lot when I discuss things with my parents. How is this transforming the relationship between a provider and a patient? Is it causing more harm than good by not recognizing the trauma? Or is this something that will help improve those experiences? AJ, I'm, I'm going to give you two examples to help our listeners understand how this plays out in the real world. In healthcare, there are certain procedures that are performed that require immobilization techniques or, or, or confined spaces such as an MRI. And you have patients that are extremely claustrophobic. So what do you do for that? I mean, is that just a manifestation of their concerns? Or is there something really there that they're afraid of confined spaces? Has there been some kind of trauma previously that prevents them from undergoing these procedures? And how important is it for them to have this procedure knowing that they may have a traumatic history? You know, that's one example. We have to be cognizant of these things. And obviously, as physicians and healthcare workers, we need to understand and rule out the importance of the actual exam versus the feeling of the patient and their ability or inability to undergo certain procedures. Another example I'm gonna give you is that in certain procedures during examinations, it's required that the lights become dim. So when that happens, that becomes a trigger point for certain patients, certain patients that have been raped or sexually abused or have those kind of sexual assaults the lights being dimmed down triggers a nerve for them. And how does a healthcare worker know that? And what do you do in that case? It's important to really ask the questions and understand the patient holistically to be able to help them through these different procedures. Additionally, I think what's most important is to be able to provide clear understanding to the patient of what's going to take place whether it's disrobing or whether it's gonna be turning the lights down or looking at certain areas of their body, um, whatever the exam is gonna entail. I think it's just clearly defining what's about to take place would obviously help the patient feel more comfortable throughout the procedure and additionally allow the physician or healthcare worker to be more effective so that way they don't have interruptions during the procedure. Now, and just building off of that, I'm going to kind of take it in two different routes. The first one is going back to what AJ said. And AJ, you chose an interesting word. You said between the patient and the provider. I would say that that's part of why we're in this situation today is because physicians who have been trained in the art and in the science of medicine have not been allowed to practice that art and the science in the way that it was intended to, for two people in a room to have a dialogue and to have a discussion. And instead, it's been sort of scaled into this industry in which it's turned a physician into a provider. It's somebody that is, again, you know, trying to get people through the system and, and whatnot. And because of that, it's been detrimental to our ability to care for people as patients and the reasons why they come to see us. So that's kind of the, the first thing. And then I think the second thing to Wes's point is I have a really good friend. She is a lawyer. She is experienced in the medical healthcare industry, and she is a stark patient advocate. And I've had the fortune to know Aaron for years and, and to really be 
profoundly impacted by her. And this entire topic around trauma-informed care is something that she made me aware of and how the slightest of triggers to a Wes's point, whether it's someone coming in and saying, I need you to undress, or a flip of the light switch and the, the lights being dimmed down can cause triggers and it can cause really deep-rooted emotional reactions from patients. If a physician doesn't understand that and doesn't realize or at least is aware of what that patient may be going through at that point in time, it really impedes their ability to connect and it impedes their ability to care for that patient at that point in time. Not only does it impede that, but if physicians aren't just acutely aware of these types of reactions that that people can have as they're seeing, oftentimes they just kind of blow it off as to, you know, well, this patient is reacting incorrectly or, you know, I don't have time for this stuff and they kind of move on to, to the next thing. It's really important for all of us in this space to not only to be aware, but to be sensitive and to make sure that we're spending that time with another human being, that we're taking the time to see them, to hear them, and to understand them. So let me ask you guys another question, because I find you've been in healthcare a lot longer than I have. When we talk about trauma-informed care, is this something that's being taught in medical school today? Are they being trained currently on how to do this the right way? Or is this just we've recognized this need and now we need to start working towards a solution? Uh, Andy, I want to let you answer this one first and then I'll give my thoughts on this. It probably hasn't been until the last maybe three years that I was really made aware of trauma-informed care and the importance of it. And so with that being said, I know of maybe two programs, meaning medical schools, that teach outwardly about trauma-informed care to, to their students. And outside of that, I am not aware, and I'll be honest, I haven't also done a lot of research on medical schools and their curriculum. But with that being said, I think as we sort of see this inflection point that's happening between the art and practice of medicine and science and technology is that there's technology out there that's going to inherently be able to process data and information. As that continues to grow exponentially and become that much better at it, I think that's where the critical point and focus needs to be for the human aspect inside of medicine. So the physicians and the nurses and the other caregivers is that they need to double down on the EQ portion and to be able to understand and to be trained and to read these cues uh, that happen socially because that's the part that a computer cannot ever own. And so that's where we really need to own that and continue to build it out and really continue to sort of drive our value as humans inside of a very human-driven industry. Andy, I, I agree with everything that you just said. And AJ, to get to your question, I'm going to put a little bit of a different spin on it. You know, when you talk about medical schools teaching that, the truth is I don't know how many medical schools are teaching that or are not teaching that. But I think what I'm learning and what I'm seeing is healthcare administrators are picking up on this and they're putting in place 
procedures and protocols that do give patients an opportunity to sit down with a healthcare worker, nurse, therapist, whomever, um, and go over things and ask the questions through surveys and questionnaires to be able to determine if there are any trigger points that may arise prior to a physician's interaction or any procedures that are taking place. So I think this, and Andy, I know you had mentioned this, this came on your radar about three years ago. I worked at an institution about five years ago, and at that point they were starting to implement a program there for their breast cancer patients. And they were following these metrics and looking at different trigger points to determine what is it that causes certain reactions from patients that are being treated for breast cancer. And it was very enlightening to find the results and what some of those triggers were. And obviously what we were able to do as healthcare workers to help alleviate some of those triggers throughout the course of their treatments. So can you share what some of those triggers were that you guys were you know, made aware of and, and to look for? Yeah. So one of the first ones was male. Some patients were just very adamant that they didn't want males anywhere in the either treatment room or you know having any part of their care. Another trigger was, as I had mentioned earlier, the dimming of the lights because that just triggered a negative effect. Touching, again, you're, you're being treated for breast cancer, but again, that touching of their intimate body parts caused triggers. People made us uh, aware of that and we had to be very careful and just inform that this is what we're going to be doing. Another interesting trigger was if they heard whispering in the background. So if someone was whispering and they couldn't make out what was saying, that would be a trigger for them. And that could be from the trauma that they had received in the past. You know, that's really interesting especially the the whisper because you and i have been slightly warped because we've grown up in in the radiation oncology world especially as therapists is oftentimes we are kind of whispering back and forth whether it's when you're positioning a patient or or whatnot i guess i never really thought about that to me that's one of those insights that it's yeah like it makes sense but when i was caring for patients i myself never thought of it Absolutely. And, you know, even going through school, I can recall that our instructors always told us, make sure the patient can't hear you. Uh, you know, if you have a question or if you're looking at something, something doesn't seem right, step away from the patient and you can discuss it with your uh, colleagues. And I've taken the approach now that if there's a concern, openly talk about it and include the patient within your dialogue, as opposed to trying to whisper and hope that the patient doesn't hear you because you don't want to set off any triggers. And even if that patient hasn't filled out a questionnaire for that trigger, you just don't want to, you want to make the patient be a part of the treatment and of the processes. I think that's a great point because, you know, it kind of comes back into the fact that in medicine, it is about transparency. It is about open dialogue. And at the end of the day, the patient not only needs to be informed, but the patient truly needs to be part of that decision-making process and their care process because it's ultimately their, their body. So, Wes, you have our next subject that we want to dive into. And I think it's a little outdated when we first started talking about doing this podcast, but talking about COVID-19 vaccine trials funding, please take it away. Thanks, AJ. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating and it's right for the times, especially as we're progressing through this COVID-19 pandemic and we're, you know, storming ahead with vaccines. It's what does that mean for us as citizens? What does it mean for us as healthcare workers? 
And what does it mean for the for us as general public? Obviously, there's a lot of different companies out there that are producing vaccine trials. They're trying to be the first to market this. And obviously, the U.S. government is putting a lot of money behind it and support behind it to be the first in the world to put together a vaccine. As of right now, we're pouring trillions of dollars into our economies just to kind of keep us afloat. But obviously, once we have a vaccine, you know, this will put us back to work and really change the landscape of things and the way that we're currently conducting business. That being said, there's a lot of concerns around vaccines. And are people going to be willing to come out and immediately take the vaccine? Are they not going to be willing to take the vaccine? What is the costing structure for these vaccines? Is it going to be affordable? Is it going to be free? I think there's a lot of discussions, a lot of unknowns. And even though this, AJ, as you mentioned, this is a little bit outdated, I don't think it is. I think it's completely relevant. And these discussions have to be had today. And we need to be aware of what the options are going forward. So that way we can better understand what our options are as individuals towards these vaccines. First off, in our current climate, and especially today, we see so much debate over fear of vaccines and the complete idiocy over thinking that there's going to be tracking bugs planted in these vaccines. Let's think realistically, how many people do you really think are going to be first in line? Do you think that there's going to be kind of that bell curve that's a natural occurrence of early adopters, normal adopters to late adopters? Or is it going to be like a run on the bank kind of situation where we can't keep up with demand? I think it's a really interesting question, at least in the U.S., because there's almost not a middle ground. You've got both ends of the spectrum, and maybe that's hyped up by the media. But at least in Wisconsin, I can tell from who I talk to and what I hear is that it is too ends of the, the spectrum and there's not a lot of middle ground. If I fast forward and I think about, okay, a vaccine is now available, what does that adoption look like? And I'm not really sure, you know, would I be one of the first people to sign up for the vaccine? And I don't know if I would. I think I would probably want to wait a little bit just to kind of see six months post initial phase three trials and what that looks like and what are some of those other outcomes before I probably signed up. But I'm also willing to accept the consequences that if I'm not one of the first people taking the vaccines that I need to continue to social distance, I need to continue to mask. I may not necessarily be able to go to certain places in public. I may not be able to travel. Like I'm I'm willing to accept my social responsibility for making that choice. But probably after a period of one, maybe two quarters, and as I continue to sort of see what that uptake was and, and whatnot, then yeah, I would definitely get myself and make sure that my family is vaccinated because I think it's extremely important. So what's the average time for a vaccine to be developed? Because we're seeing it happen in real time right now. And a lot of people think that this is something that you can just quickly turn around. And especially when you watch some sci-fi shows, they develop vaccines within hours of discovering a disease. But what's in reality, what's a normal timeline for encountering a virus and developing a vaccine? You know, AJ, typically vaccines take about 10 years to develop. You know, the goal here being that this is a worldwide pandemic and a lot of people are affected. The goal is to try to expedite this process as quickly as they can. So they're trying to do it within 12 to 18 months. 
we, there's a lot of advantages that we have to being able to prioritize and to accelerate these vaccines. So we have prior knowledge of the coronavirus through SARS. We have improvements in sequencing and bioengineering technology. The government is 100% in support of this. They're providing additional funding to the industries to manufacture these vaccines and to do trials. So when you think of these trials, phase one, phase two, phase three trials, they're actually supposed to be done in sequence order, but right now they're doing them tangentially. So you can be enrolling patients in a phase one clinical trial and, and then very quickly move into a phase two and phase three. So they're really trying to accelerate this and move this forward as quickly as possible. To Andy's point, you know, would I be the first ones out there to get a vaccine that has been accelerated this quickly? I don't know that I would. I think I would be in the same camp that Andy is. Uh, I don't know that I'd be an early adapter. I don't know that I would ask my family to undergo a vaccine that has been relatively rigorously tested. However, it has also been expedited and we don't know what the long-term efficacy of this vaccine could be. Is there gonna be a requirement for a booster shot? How long is it gonna last? Is it gonna be required to have a shot every six months, every year, every three months. We don't know. And that's what we need to try to figure out. That's a really good point. And that's a good synopsis of valid concerns, especially when something I haven't considered before was when you said how quickly it's being developed. And that's of concern because we're really rushing through a lot of stuff to help people as fast as we can. As of right now, there's about how many, how many people around or companies around the world are actively working on a vaccine at the moment? I don't know the exact number, to be honest with you, but I know there's mo there's many companies around the world and there's companies that are US-based that have, they have manufacturing in other parts of their business in other countries and they're working there as well to develop these vaccines. From what I've read, it, it kind of seems like any of the major pharmaceuticals are in this direction, whether it's AstraZeneca, Glaxo, Klein Smith, but then you've also got some upstarts. And what I think is interesting is some of those that seem to be ahead of the go-to-market adoption curve of, of having a vaccine are those very companies that are, are kind of the unicorns. They haven't brought a vaccine to market yet. Their valuation has just skyrocketed. I know we were reading about one company and I think their valuation sort of pre-February of this year was just under $7 billion. And, you know, you look in the paper and they're now valued at $23 billion. And it looks based on what their executive team is saying that they're going to meet this timeline and they're going to be the first to market. But at the same time, they have no street cred. They've not delivered a vaccine before, let alone something of this nature with this speed and at this scale or magnitude. And so the question becomes, is this a repeat of history? Uh, where you see a big promise on something as a medical breakthrough in new technology, but when it comes to really showing and proving the efficacy of what it does, that it's merely smoke and mirrors. Andy, to your point, I think this company that you're referring to has also not been very forthcoming with their disclosures and the way that they've conducted their tests and their uh, studies. I think there's a lot that we need to better understand. So I wanna ask you guys a question here. Let's say this vaccine does come out and it passes phase three testing. 
is there an order in which this vaccine should become available to the public or should it be first come first serve? Should it be healthcare workers immediately? I mean, who should get it first? That's a really good question. I think a general consensus that I've heard from other people talking about this is you get frontline workers vaccinated first. The people that are at the most risk who are trying to help save other lives seems very important that they should get it first. And I agree. I think that in order, it it's kind of goes back to the idea of if you want to help others and you're just running yourself ragged trying to, to serve others and to do things for other people, then you're no good to them if you're half falling asleep when you're just sitting there trying to have a conversation. You have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. So for me, that's that's my perspective. And I could be wrong, but I think frontline workers and health workers should get the vaccine first. You know, my take on that is very similar. I think obviously the medical workers that are on the front lines and are responsible for caring, you know, for patients on a daily basis, they need to get it because at the end of the day, uh, there's more patients coming in and they need to be cared for. And then I think it goes to the, the populations that are the most at risk and impacted. So again, when we think of those that are age 65 and older, those that have comorbidities, those that have COPD, I think those sort of populations need to have access to it. In addition to that, I also think it's our disparate population. So it's the ethnic minority populations that don't have a lot of access to typical medical prevention and medical intervention and oftentimes do show up to the, the ERs. To me, that's going to be probably the most interesting thing that happened. And how does that happen? And what is the period of time in which the U.S. can actually make that happen. Because oftentimes what happens is, is it's either first come, first serve, or those who have coverage and can pay are the ones that get it. And it's oftentimes those populations that are the most critical, the most at risk, and the most in need are oftentimes the populations that kind of get missed. And I hope was something as impactful to a person's life as, as what this pandemic has been, that we can truly focus in on that and figure out a way that we can get this vaccine to those communities. So I think you both made great points in who should get it, being healthcare workers and people that have comorbidities and, and really need it initially. The question is, who's going to pay for it? And are we going to expect these companies, these large corporations, to just give out free vaccination after they spent all this time and money developing them? So where did the money come from for their R&D? It's, it's similar to other things that have happened, like the research and development for insulin. You know, we, we paid for those as taxpayers, at least in America. And it's really hard for me to stomach the idea of profiteering off of a global health crisis. There are times when the profit margins can be minimalized by these companies who are creating vaccines. This shouldn't be a private enterprise only type of situation. It should be a co-working of government enterprises, public sector enterprises, and working for the common good. And I know that may sound extremely hippie, socialist, whatever you want to call it, but this is something that is bigger and 
beyond just a a profit maker. This is our economy, our way of living, our societal structure, the things that we benefit from having a cohesive society, the things that help improve our day-to-day living, those come to a halt because of a pandemic like this. And in order to recover and to recover faster, and this is something that I truly believe that a healthy nation is a economically strong nation, then we need to think about how to lower the cost and to subsidize it. If we can spend billions on farmers to raise crops that wind up rotting in storehouses, we can find the funds to help cover and subsidize these costs. Piling on to to what AJ said, I think we have to look at the companies that seem poised or at least positioned to be some of the first to market. And many of them, it's been sort of this public-private partnership where they've gotten a huge influx of hundreds of millions of dollars. They've had shared research from the NIH. There is shared intellectual property between the government and the scientists, as well as the pharmaceutical companies. And so I think because of that, there has to be a focus on the right cost structure. To think that a company potentially spends a billion dollars, but they look to profit a trillion dollars, a thousand time ROI on something as significant as this pandemic, I don't think is right. I don't think that's socially acceptable. I don't think from a humanitarian perspective that that's right. And I think as far as just the the greater medical community and what we're supposed to be doing and pharmaceutical companies are part of that, I don't agree with it. Now, I do agree with the fact that as a company and as investment and putting in the time and work and effort into it, that you do have a right to make some profit Uh, off of that. And I think that's where our pricing structure has to become a lot more realistic and maybe more in line of what we see in in some other countries outside of the U.S. And I'd like to see whether it's the government or whether this is something that the American Hospital Association or others kind of step in and, and give some guidance to, I think would be highly beneficial. Yeah, and for me, this is this is definitely a an issue that I find appalling that a company can profit so much off of the health of others. And I think we need to really re-examine, and I think it's happening at this time too, how healthcare systems are structured and how that relationship is. Just to think about it, a hundred years ago, we had to create laws to ban children from going into mines and working. And that's not hyperbole. You can find images of six to eight-year-olds with their little minor cap chewing on a cigar going to work. And when we allow free reign in capitalism to happen, exploitation is very quick to follow. So there has to be a balance of subsidization, regulation, oversight, checks and balances, whatever you want to call it, to make sure that the general population is taken care of. And I say that also from a position of saying, we as citizens are the quote unquote human capital that creates the economy. 
that creates the profits, that creates this income for all of these entities. And if you don't take care of your people, then all of that crumbles. It's just, it's mind boggling. And I've lived in other countries that have had nationalized healthcare plans that have very well-to-do systems in place. And we have the money to make these things affordable as a government, as a federal government, as a state government, the money's there. So Wes, you've, you know, you, you posed the question to, to both AJ and myself. So what are your thoughts on this topic? Come fight me, bro. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, I think every industry and every company has, has a right to make a profit. I think they are perfectly in their right to make money and they put the time in, they've put the intellectual property in, they've developed the product. But let's not forget where the initial investment came from. And that came from taxpayer dollars, that came from you and I. So the federal government gave them unspecified amounts of money to go ahead and start building a vaccine. Now, what that means is we're doing it for the greater good, for the social good. Yes, you can make money, you are entitled to make money, but think about the social good and think about how it's gonna affect people. So if you go ahead and charge $500 for a vaccination, some people will be able to afford it and that won't be an issue, but not everyone will be able to afford it. So what are you gonna do for that? For those patients that cannot afford it, do you give it to them for free? Do you build the insurance company and then you end up giving a coupon or a rebate to individuals that can't make their co-payments? You know, there, this has to be thought out. Um, other developed countries have set negotiated prices. I think the U.S. has to figure out what they're going to do so that way the corporations are able to make money so that the citizens of this country can get the vaccinations that they need. And obviously everyone can be happy and we can get out of this pandemic and return to life as normal. But I don't think that it's an appropriate time to make a killing and having a thousand X profit over a vaccination that really is going to help save lives. And I think one thing to hit on OS is unpacking, and maybe we should do a podcast on just this subject alone. The American healthcare system is technically three or four healthcare systems working in tandem. So we have our HMOs, we have our in-network, out-of-network type of systems. We have our nationalized healthcare with Medicare. We have Medicaid. We have our VA system. We, we have a cluster of a healthcare system that is an incoherent mess that takes law degree like professionals to navigate proficiently. And that I think is at part of the center of all of this when you're saying, well, how will people afford it? It should, that should not even be a question in a global pandemic and shouldn't, as, as my therapist says, should and shouldn't is shame. And yes, shame on us for putting ourselves in a position where people might not be able to afford a vaccine to save their lives. That, as, as a human being, that should never, ever be a point where that should happen. What I think we're going to find in talking about a lot of different topics is it does help us define things in, in two different worlds. You've got this world of health care, which is it's industrialized. It is an output of our post-industrial revolution. And then you've got medicine. And the two are drastically different. Healthcare 
is about being provider-based. It's about numbers. It's about dollars and cents. It's about scale. It's about distribution. It's about the financial aspect and advantageous that you can get in a capital society such as, as the U.S. And then you've got medicine, which medicine is the root of why physicians, nurses, therapists, clinicians, anyone that works inside of a hospital, there is probably a gut ethereal driven catalyst inside of each person that they're doing it because they want to know that they impact the life of a loved one, the life of someone in their community and the potential patient that they may become. It's because we've got sort of these conflicts between the world of medicine and the world of healthcare that it creates these types of, of conversations and paradigms as we sort of travel through, whether it's this pandemic or, or something else, our leaders, whether that's the three of us doing a podcast like this, or it's leadership at a hospital or a pharmaceutical company or medical device company or within our government, we all have a decision to make. And what I'm hoping is, is that people will continue to choose the path of medicine, the path of impacting the lives of people in our communities and the patients that they may become and the humanistic side of things versus the medical industrial complex and the industrial revolution that has created this pseudo business that everyone refers to and focuses on called healthcare. So hopefully this is the, the start of that change. Well said, and we'll take that as a good transition because change is inevitable in every way. So I wanted to talk to you guys about some change happening and that's some new research and development that's coming out of UCLA. So one of the things that I found intriguing is when you talk medicine, healthcare, why are people motivated? This popped up on my Feedly feed and I love it. It's a sign language interpreting glove in near real time. So what's wild about this is it's a it's just a regular old glove with a small little chip and flexible sensors on each finger. And it's being able to interpret and translate what you're signing in real, almost exact real time. One of the investigators, Jun Chen, and I probably butchered that, so I apologize. They said, our hope is that this opens up an easy way for people who use sign language to communicate directly with non-signers without needing someone else to translate for them. In addition, we hope it can be more help more people learn sign language themselves. When we talk about medicine versus healthcare, and I think, you know, as we suss out what that means as a good definition, I think this falls in medicine. This is about bridging a gap. It's about helping people. And it's about making life better for everybody involved in the conversation. And by your silence, I will take that as agreement. So that's the end of the podcast, right? <laughs> Roll credits. I would agree with you, AJ. I definitely think, you know, if, if we're voting the technology, healthcare or medicine, I definitely say it's medicine. I think it's super cool. I think being able to have the ability to communicate, not just from an auditory perspective, but for those that do sign, and that is the way that they communicate with others and being able to 
understand them, I think is, it's amazing. And I think that's where our technology and how our innovation needs to continue to, to focus on. Because at the end of the day, connection and communication is, is how we thrive as humans and as a species. I think this is super cool. So I'm going to give a little bit of a different answer. I think that this is both medicine and healthcare. I think this is amazing and it's such an advancement for those people that use sign language on a daily basis and have to go through the struggles of not having people understand what they're what they need. From a medicine perspective and from an individual perspective, this is such a big advancement that's really going to help individuals' lives. From a healthcare perspective, I think this is also a great advancement because if you work in healthcare, you understand how difficult it is to get a third-party translator service available to help you with the patient that doesn't speak your language, your native language, whether that's Spanish, French, Portuguese, or sign language. And for sign language, you have to have someone come into your department to be able to help translate for you. In this case, you have the ability in real time to not have someone that is going to give you incorrect information, not translate accurately and correctly. And it's also going to increase efficiencies within the department and in the hospital. So I think it, it teeters on both areas and I think it is an advancement in healthcare as well. So I'll share a little anecdote with you guys because before working in healthcare, before doing the marketing stuff and video production, all of that cool creative design, I spent six months working as a storm chaser for roof repair. And one of my clients, one of the homeowners, I found out because I had talked to the wife, the husband was deaf. So I got a phone call one day from him and had to speak through a translator who was doing a video conference call with him, translating in real time. And that was the first time it just dawned on me that that kind of a service existed and how complex and how slow communication was to have to have a go-between like that. He had a translator assigned to him that was a female, and she was always so good at translating things back and forth and being completely just autonomous, I guess would be the word. And to be able to free that up and to have face-to-face -face communication without having an intermediary would make that, I think, a much more personal, empathy-driven experience. We've gone full circle where it goes back to our initial conversation of trauma-informed care, of making sure that the end user, the patient, the person in front of you is actively participating in is part of that conversation. To your point, AJ, the empowerment. I can only imagine someone would feel that has struggled trying to communicate through sign language in a world that just isn't informed and in a world that isn't trained in how to use sign language to, to communicate. And I can I can only imagine how that would feel in the, the empowering feelings that would come along with that. Again, I think this is so cool and I'm so glad uh, you brought it to, to our attention. All right, so we're going to wrap it up because that was just a good, lighthearted thing. But that's that's all we have for our first podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, OS and Andy. And so you can tell us the good, the bad, and the plain ugly of what we've done here on social media. And you can find me, AJ Montpetit, on the socials at, at AJ M-O-N-T-P-E-T-I-T -T, on Twitter. And you can find me on LinkedIn. And you will be able to find me soon 
on the social medias once I sign up very soon. <laughs> and as always, I'm Andy Jaleo, better known as the Cancer Geek. You can find me on all the social media platforms of your choosing at Cancer Geek. And please remember, at the end of the day, it's all about practicing medicine at the end of one.